Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George. It's so great to have you with us today. Today we have a church planner by the name of Carl Cool. How great of a name is that? It's not spelled C-O-O-L, though. It's K-U-H-L. Uh, he is a church planner up in the New England area, specifically the Baltimore area, and the author of an incredible book called Bloodstained Fuse. It's a great resource, great book. You're going to want to check it out. But he's also a great leader and a church planter. And if you've been around Real Life Church in the past few months, you know that we are on a mission to plant 30 church planting churches by the year 2030 in California. And Carl's going to teach us some ways to do that, make church planning a bit more simple. And so for those of you out there interested in planting a church, come to California. Go west, young man. Love to have you come out here and plant a church. We'd love to participate with you. And because of that, we are working with a great organization called Stadia. StadiaChurchPlanning.org is where you can find out more from them. They're sponsoring the show this month. They are an incredible group of people that have a mission to plant churches until every child has a church. And right now, there's just not enough. In fact, if every church in America was filled to capacity two services on Sunday, there still wouldn't be enough. So with that in mind, we want to sponsor and work with church planners. And we're so grateful that Stadia is helping us promote this message. Go to stadiachurchplanning.org. Well, here's my conversation with Carl Cool. Hope you enjoy this. Carl Cool, the man with the coolest name that I know. Uh, spelled K-U-H-L though, right? You got it. All right. Tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you like I do. So I am a pastor, church planter uh, outside Baltimore, Maryland at Mosaic Christian Church. We planted it 14 years ago and uh, I am married. I should know the exact year, shouldn't I? Something like 18 years now. <laughs> Four kids <laughs> and um, diehard Baltimore Raven fan, University of Louisville basketball fan. Let's go. Okay, now, now there's not a lot of people that have that combination nor claim it, but uh, wow. Okay, so University of Louisville. Most people I know that hail from the state of Kentucky are UK basketball fans, but you are U of L. Tell me why. I grew up going to games from when I was three years old. Okay, and uh, was there in the late '80s when we were awesome. Suffered through the 90s, came back during the Rick Bettino years. So here's a quick story for you. When Rick Bettino was deciding where he was going to coach after he had left the Celtics, been fired from the Celtics, Yes, uh, he was commentating for CBS during March Madness in Dayton, Ohio. I drove to Dayton. I got a second row seat and held up a sign that said, "Come, uh, Joanne, his wife's name, come back to Louisville soon love Cardination or something like that. And he made eye contact with me and laughed. And the guy sitting next to him said, he'll never go there. And I think he came because of my sign. I think you turned the tide. I did. So basically, you are responsible for a national championship, but also a lot of uh, allegations and uh, punishment as well. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to own that part. No way. Okay. Well, for those who don't even have a clue what we're talking about, I, I'm sorry. But uh, Baltimore Ravens, okay, yeah, you've got some Super Bowls out of that. So um, let's let's talk about kind of uh, you growing up. All right. So you grew up 
in the church, going to Southeast Christian Church, was a, which is a massive church in Louisville, an incredible church. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, what was that like? I mean, how did just growing up at such a big church prepare you for ministry or maybe even spark the desire for ministry? Well, my family started going to Southeast, um, which was a great church, when I was something like five years old. And it was less than a thousand people, mm. and it grew to just gargantuan numbers and gargantuan buildings and budgets and the whole deal. But all I knew of church growing up was these simple things. Church is fun. Church is where your friends are. Church helps you grow. And the church itself grows. Like, that's all mm. I knew about church mm. growing up. And I even remember when kind of the light bulb came on that I had an atypical church experience was when I was in Bible college. And one day I was in this like ministry 101 class and our professor said, hey, y'all, today we're going to talk about church splits. And a couple of people around me started laughing and saying, oh, yeah. And I thought it, I was, I didn't know what they were talking about. What is a church split? And what they were talking about is when a church splits in two and like a new church is planted, quote unquote, because <laughs> they split. So you never had that experience. You had a great experience with a great senior pastor in Bob Russell and then Dave Stone, now Kyle Eidelman. You saw nothing but up and to the right success. Mm -hmm. You go to Bible college. You went to Cincinnati. Is that right? That's right. May it rest in peace. Yes, sir. Uh, so you went there. I think we actually took a class in seminary together. I don't know if you remember that or not, when I was working in Lexington. But during that time, uh, you began to develop a heart to do ministry. And I guess this is what I'm, I'm driving at. You're a person that only saw success in ministry. Did that prepare you or did that blind you to what church can be sometimes? It gave me advantages of which I knew not. Okay. Um, because I just saw things done healthy ways without realizing it. And uh, no church is perfect. I get that. I didn't have any, you know, delusions that Southeast was the pinnacle of God's church and, you know, that they had perfected the way of doing church or anything like that. But I, it was a healthy church. And, you know, healthy churches have problems, but they handle problems in healthy ways. And it really um, mm. helped prepare me for ministry because then later when I saw ministry done in unhealthy ways, I, I could just feel it even before I could articulate it. This isn't how it's supposed to be. You know, there's a better way to go about solving this problem or having this hard conversation uh, or any, you know, number of leadership issues. So tell us about uh, your journey after you got out of college. Where did you go next, and how did you get into church planning? So one day in uh, another ministry class in Bible college, my professor says, hey, we're going to talk today about church planting. And we have a guest speaker today named Tim Cole. And this guy got up and talked about the church he had co-planted with Vince Antonucci in Virginia Beach called Forefront Church, and just told story after story of reaching people who are so far from God stories of utter brokenness and great redemption and doing church outside the box. And I thought, man, that is really compelling because my high school youth minister had been Jim Bergen, who's at Flatirons Church now. And he really uh, stoked this fire inside me to reach broken, lost, fringe people. I mean, every day because of Jim Bergen, when I went to high school, it was a mission field. 
And I couldn't explain the gospel, but Jim could. So I knew if I could just get them to church, they get it. Uh, they may not accept Jesus, but they get it. But fast forward to college, I hear that about church planting and doing church outside the boxways. And when it came time to graduate, I uh, called that church up and said, hey, I want to do an internship for you and talk to the pastor Vince. And he said, well, tell me a little bit about you know your thoughts on ministry. I said, well, there's this book that's really impacted me called What's So Amazing About Grace. And on page one, the author talks about a friend of his who's a social worker working with um, the down and out in Chicago. He has this woman come to him who got into drugs, got into prostitution to support her drugs, got into more expensive drugs, and then started renting out her two-year-old daughter to support her drug habit. And she's absolutely disgusted with herself. She's seeking help. And this guy says, did you ever think of going to church for help? And she stops short and says, I already felt bad about my, bad enough about myself. Why would I go to church? They just make me feel worse. Right. And in the book, Philip Yancey says, the interesting thing is those people often run away from the church today, but in the gospels, they ran to Jesus. And that story, that book really grabbed me. So I explained this to Vince on the phone. I said, have you ever heard anything like this? And he says, actually, that's my favorite book. I think this is going to work. Why don't you come out here? <laughs> so I ended up going to Virginia Beach and working with Vince for about four years in total. Got married in the middle of that. Uh, took my wife out there and uh, was a creative arts director. Um, and it was a really helpful experience for me because it was at the time when I grew up at Southeast, it was a traditional church. Everybody in stage had suits and it's very polished and hymns and the whole thing. And uh, so, you know, the church I worked at out of college was kind of opposite end of the spectrum. Hey, let's break rules of doing church just to break them type thing. But I learned a lot. I would say so. Uh, for those of our listeners who don't know Vince, he's spoken at Real Life a few times, and uh, he's he's just uh, out of the box, crazy thinker. And uh, man, I, I'm just thinking about the stories you must be able to tell about Vince and about Jim Bergen. Man, these guys are really the renegades when it comes to church because they're always pushing the envelope. And I think you said it really well. Let's break rules just to break them. Give me a few things that you guys would do there at Frontline with Vince that you thought, wow, I can't believe we're doing this. Man, um, we... <laughs> so Vince is a funny guy, and I think he could be a writer for like a late night talk show yes. if he wanted to. And one of his goals was always to make people laugh. Yes. And I think that's a great thing. I think J Jesus made people laugh. I absolutely think we should laugh in church and with other Christians. Absolutely. Uh, one of the ways Vince wanted to do that was to have a, a parade of characters that we brought in through video or live in service every so often. I think he was inspired by Conan O'Brien. Yes. The one that was most, the two that were most memorable is he had Paco the Dancing Bear who would go to random public places and he was just a dancing gorilla and he would dance and he'd film people's reactions. And then we had, uh, gosh, I can't remember the other ones. That's, <laughs> it was just that kind of stuff. Um, it was unique. And sometimes, and sometimes people laughed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Not everybody laughs, but uh, but Vince laughs, and that's what's so great about it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, uh, worked on a message series with Vince one time. Uh, we did a series called Stranger Things, based off you know the show and everything. 
And so he said, let's write this together. I said, great, because Vince is a great message writer. Uh And he said, okay, I'm going to film some videos and you can use them if you want to. Okay, great. Well, they were like man on the street kind of things where he's interviewing people you know, about the, the show Stranger Things. And, and one of the, his interviews, he, uh, he doesn't let the person answer because he's just reading the bio of what Stranger Things is and all the credits of everybody who worked on the show before he stops the question. It was so hilarious because the person's just standing there waiting to speak. And I laughed. Uh, I don't know if our people found it all that funny, but that's, that was just the beauty of Vince. And, and now he's out in Vegas, and we've helped them, and uh, they, they just are doing great things with Verve Church. So, okay, so you, man, this is quite a resume you're d- establishing here. Grew up at Southeast, worked for uh, Vince Antonucci, and now talk about the decision to plant a church. So seed had already kind of been planted by Bergen and then Tim Cole, um, and obviously Frontline. But then what happened? So I um, knew it was time to go lead a church, uh, had that inside me, and obviously knew I wasn't ready right out of college as a 22-year-old. So I got in a little bit of church experience and was exploring what that would look like. I was at the Exponential Church Planting Conference in Orlando, and I ran into a guy who worked at Southeast that we've been family friends with for years. He and I sat down and I said, look, I've seen a decent amount of church world in my few years working in ministry now, and I know that something Southeast has to offer to church plant world is not just dollars, but DNA. And I think you all should bring somebody on as a resident church planter to soak up some of your DNA to replicate that in a church plant. Obviously, I'm thinking in my head, I know a pretty good candidate. Yeah. And he said, why don't you write something up about that? So I did sent it to him, but never heard anything back and thought, well, you know, I tried. Oh, well. And then one day, like three months later, a uh, Kentucky area code 502 pops up on my phone. I thought maybe somebody in my family got a new phone number. I answered it and it was somebody I'd only talked to in passing one time before, but I greatly respected. And he said, hey, this is Kyle Eidelman. Uh, Let's talk church planting. Hmm. And a few months later, I was on staff at Southeast and uh, was there for about a year and a half before we moved to Maryland to plant. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, Kyle had a heart for church planting because he did that, and he planted Real Life Church. And the greatest thing he ever did for me was leave this place so I could come here. That's right. He goes to Southeast and uh, still continues that heart for church planting, which I just love. So what did you soak up in a year and a half there at Southeast that you didn't already know? The greatest thing (laughs) I learned, because, you know, you grow up at a place and you're baptized at a place and you see what's on the outside. And I've had, I had had people tell me this, but to see firsthand, they didn't know what they were doing either was just great. <laughs> it really was. They did this big groups push within a few months of me being there. And when I, you know, I was in the meetings where I was hearing the plans pitched and all that. And I just kept thinking, man, I, I would do it differently than that. I, I, w- I didn't think that would work, but you know, they hire sharp people here. So I guess this will crush it. And it completely bombed. <laughs> and I mean, they could have got as many people in groups of just doing like one simple announcement and having a bad sign-up system. And it was so refreshing to see, oh, great. They don't know what they're doing either. Yeah. But it gave me so much freedom as a leader. Um, I love, I, I've stolen, adapted, uh, halfway trademarked Mark Batterson's phrase of everything is an experiment. Mm-hmm. Because I've just realized nobody knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to say I don't know what I'm doing because that creates insecurity in people. 
But if I just make a decision and say, hey, we're going to do an experiment, then people totally buy into it because they say, great, he's not saying he has it figured out. He's not saying this may not even be biblical, but he's trying to reach people or trying to disciple people. So we're going to go for it. I'm, I can do an experiment. Let's do it. That is such a great piece of insight there. That's the uh, Larry Osborne talks about that in his book, Innovation's Dirty Little Secret, which is just tell everybody, it's just, we're going to give it a go. We're going to give it a try for six weeks or whatever it is and just see what happens. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I, I too have made the mistake of saying, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. And it bombs. And then what are you doing? You know, you're just left standing there. So, okay. So you decide uh, uh, to work there. You soak up all this great information. You learn that not everybody's got it figured out. And you choose to plant a church in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. So for our listeners who don't know this, the Northeast is kind of like a graveyard of church plants because it's so hard to plant up there high Catholicism rate, high de-churched area. The only things that are seeming to work up there are old Catholic churches that people feel compelled to attend, but there's a huge need for church planning. You decide to go there. Why did you choose Baltimore and help some of our, our listeners who are thinking, well, I think I'd like to plant a church. How do I know where to go? Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. Would you help us plant a church? Go to stadiachurchplanting.org today to find out more. All right, back to our episode. Yeah. So I went to all these church planting conferences, read the church planting books, and every and and talked to church planters, and all of them had this great call of God to where they went. You know, the clouds would part. So, so I talked to this one guy, no lie, um, actually wrote a book on church planting to dispel this myth in part. And I talked to this guy who planted, I think it was in Portland, Maine. And he said, Carl, when we were figuring out, we were doing what you're doing. We were going to different cities and demographic studies and all that. And he said, my wife and I land in Portland. We're just going to drive the city we stop at a gas station to get directions. He said, I'm over getting ho-hos or some snack. I go up to pay for it. And my wife is hugging the cashier. They're crying and praying together. <laughs> and he said, honey, what's going on? And the wife had gone up to the cashier to get directions and not even saying it to anyone out loud. The cashier says uh, to no one in particular, she says out loud, I wish there was a good church around here because I would go to it. Huh. And the woman said, the, the pastor's wife says, we're here seeing if we would start a church. And she goes, I'll come to it if you start it. And she starts pouring out her life story. And the woman, they planted there and she went there. Wow. Like, no lie. That was their sign from God. So when we <laughs> decided we're going to plant, we start visiting all the cities in the Northeast because that's really the only, the, the place we were directed to look. And I was thinking that story. First place we landed was Baltimore. We drive to the north side of Baltimore in like an outer suburb. It's lunchtime. So we go in Chipotle. There's all these people in like business clothes on their lunch break. I thought, I'm going to put it to the test. So I go up to the soda machine and there's this 25-year-old guy. And I, I, my in is going to be the question, hey, do you know of any good churches around here? So I asked that question and I'm expecting him to say, no, but if you start one, I'll go to it. <laughs> And he looks at me like I'm an alien out of a horror movie, as if I have three heads and just asked if I could murder his children. And he says, no. And he runs away as quick as he can. <laughs> and that was our experience over and over. Like I would try to find an inn, like, God, give me a sign here. And there were no signs. The clouds never parted. We never had God speak in a 
you know, special Morgan Freeman voice. We did demographic studies everywhere needed a new church. So it wasn't even like, how do you narrow it down? And eventually it came down to, hey, there's a few different growing areas we've looked at. One of them is suburban Baltimore. We seem to like the area. Uh, let's go for it. So we jumped. Wow. I think that's so great for our listeners to hear because it's not always the God part of the Red Sea kind of moment. Often it's just, okay, we're going to go for this. And you know, a lot of people want to know God's will for their lives. And sometimes it's not a right or wrong. It's an either or, you know, you're going to honor me either way, whether you plant this church or you go and transition a church and he just puts you there. So what a, what a great place. So for a kid that grew up in what would be considered the South, what was the learning curve? What did you have to figure out living in the Northeast? Maryland's a weird place because compared to the South, it's very Northern. Compared to the truest Northeast, like Massachusetts, it feels a little Southern. Okay. But then the big thing is we're basically a big suburb of DC. So you have all these government workers, um, which just adds a whole unique twist as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was... Uh, its own unique mission field. And I loved that because I love, you know, all those books you read about, we're all missionaries and how, how would you go about life if you moved to some other country? I mean, that's what we did, right? It's learning the culture, it's learning the religion, it's learning um, the politics, it's learning family systems, you know, how, how do people work? I mean, it was starting from scratch in a lot of ways. And I'll tell you this, you'll appreciate this. Um, one time, uh, I was preaching a sermon in like the second year of our church. There's this guy coming. He wasn't a believer, uh, but he's coming every week. And one week I'm standing, we met in a movie theater. I'm standing in the hallway outside uh, our theater, you know, just saying hi to people. And this guy comes up to me and says, hey, I want you to meet my sister. She came for the first time today. And knowing his family story, I knew she wasn't a believer or churchgoer. She looks at me with squinted eyes. And her question is, where are you from? And I said, Kentucky. She responds, yeah, you are. And then she walked away <laughs> and she never came back. So there was definitely a learning curve of, hey, I ain't in Kentucky anymore. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> yeah, I have found that the accent is sometimes charming and sometimes uh, a little offensive to people. So, uh, and I didn't even grow up there. I only had nine years in Kentucky, and I can't shake the y'all and the, the drawl, but that's the way it is. There you go. Okay, so you choose to go to Baltimore. You plant this church. Now, uh, now you're a lead pastor, okay? So you've been an intern, you've been an associate, you've been a creative arts director. What was the toughest thing about being a lead pastor and what is it today? One of my friends told me before I became a lead pastor that his biggest surprise was just the weight you feel when you sit in that seat. Mm -hmm. And I totally got it. And for me, the way it expressed itself the most in church planning was the journey to become self-supportive. Because yeah. we had worked hard to raise all this money and, you know, in a way, the definitive characteristic of a church plant being successful is simply, are you self-sustaining financially? Because then you can mm -hmm. last. You, you're, you're not a church plant. You're a church. And I remember when we became self-supportive, nobody else in the church cared because their lives didn't change. <laughs> like I, I announced it, Hey, we're self-supportive and explained all the vision behind it. And they kind of gave me a golf plat clap, like Carl, we can tell you want us to clap. So we'll clap, make you feel better. But they, their life didn't change. 
because people come to church because they need help. Like they don't come to church just to help an organization become self-supportive. So it was just that type of stuff that nobody else sees, but without it, uh, we don't get to help people. And that right. is uh, early on in church planning was the biggest barrier for sure, or the biggest burden, I mean, for sure, was um, becoming self-supportive. Um, I think now the biggest burden is similar. It's just the stuff that nobody else sees. Yeah. Um, we do, we, you know, ask our people to write in a prayer request every week. And every week I go over at least a handful of those and just remembering here's who I'm preaching to. Here's who I'm pastoring. Like these are, these people's lives are falling apart. Mm. Um, I really honestly try to go back a lot to my mom and dad's story because when I was young and for multiple years, their marriage really struggled and thank God their marriage is healthy today. Um, but they talked about just being in such a bad mm -hmm. place that they would go to church and their one hope was, can church give us something that can just make our marriage last this week? We don't know if we're going to be married in two weeks, but can we, can you give us something that can make us married for one more week mm -hmm. and just make us not go insane with a, tough marriage and four kids and all the things for one week. If you can give us that, we'll keep coming. And that's all they cared about. And that's the reality that most people live in. Yeah. And that's the, that's the burden we all carry. That's really good. Okay. So you have a book out and I, I love talking with authors because it is a, um, a, a very difficult thing to do, to write a book, to put it all out there and to publish it and hope somebody reads it. Uh, but what you wrote this book called Bloodstained Pews. I'd love to know the story behind that, and I'd love to know why you chose to write it. I ran across this story a few years ago that just captivated me and would not let go. And the story goes like this. It's about two medics on D-Day. They were part of the 101st Airborne. They were dropped into Normandy. They were misdropped. They lost most of their medical gear in the drop. Um, but it's the middle of the night and they hear gunfire breaking out between Germans and Americans. You know, they're medics, so they're not there to shoot. They're there to help the ones who've been shot. One of them finds this 900-year-old church building, gorgeous, beautiful little one-room church, puts a Red Cross flag on the outside. He says, we're going to make this our triage center. So he and the other medic take turns over the course of the night going out and finding wounded, shot soldiers bringing them into the church, laying them on the pews and working on them. And over the course of the night, it's so dramatic. At one point, a mortar round comes through the ceiling and doesn't explode. It's a dud. At another point, a German soldier bursts through the door with a machine gun. But when he sees what they're doing, he crosses himself and leaves mm -hmm. uh, and many more just dramatic things like that. They save some 80 lives over the course of that night. And eventually, you know, the fighting moves on because this was some out-of-the-way village. After the war was over, the people of Angoville, that village, are rebuilding the town, are rebuilding the church, and they replace the stained glass, and they fix the hole in the roof and different things. But when they come to the pews, they're covered in blood. And if I saw that, I'd be grossed out. And I would either get new pews or maybe sand them down and revarnish them or something. But they did something very compelling. They left them. Hmm. They didn't do anything to them. They said this church was built 900 years ago to be a place of hope and healing for the broken and hurting 
And that's what it was on D-Day. So we will preserve the bloodstained pews in honor of those whose lives were saved here. And the first time I ever ran across this story, I was watching a PBS documentary while I was home alone one night. My wife gets home and I'm sitting there crying watching this documentary. She says, babe, what's wrong? Do we need to check you in somewhere? And I told her, <laughs> I've just seen the best picture of church I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. That our churches have to be places of bloodstained pews where people know we will drag you in here. This is a safe place for you to bleed and we will help you and we will help heal you and we will get you what you need so you can go fight the battle that God has in store for you. Hmm. So tell me about the book then. How do you walk through this? Because this is such a compelling story and vision for the church. I believe that the barrier to church being that is our own, Christian's own, uh, lack of vulnerability, that we don't bleed in church. Therefore, why would someone on the outside of church think it's safe for them to bleed if no one there is bleeding? And there's been so much talk of vulnerability over the last several years in our culture that I think is so good and so healthy. We need to be vulnerable, but it lacks a key thing because the message on vulnerability I'm getting from books and podcasts and TED Talks says, hey, be vulnerable because you're enough and you're worthy. And those are great things. And when I read those books and listen to those podcasts, I can connect the dots. But the reality is they don't say why I'm enough and why I'm worthy. Hmm. And so it's only when our vulnerability collides with the gospel that we experience the true freedom of community that Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church. Yeah. So yeah. for example, the foundational, I was taught uh, growing up in church, I was taught something called Romans Road mm -hmm. that said, hey, here's how you can tell people how and why they need Jesus. But it starts with, you are a sinner. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's the message people get a lot. But the reality is the scriptures start in Genesis 1, when God created man and woman, he calls everything else in Genesis 1 good. But when he creates man and woman, he calls them very good. The foundational mm -hmm. truth of me is not sinner, it's very good creation of the almighty God. And that's a different mm -hmm. starting point. So the reason I'm enough, the reason I'm worthy is because God created me and he has redeemed me. And that is why I can bleed in front of others. What we do instead, though, is we just keep secrets, we hold in our shame, and we pretend everything's okay. And that does not lead to freedom or community. Mm. That's so good. I love that, starting back at Genesis 1 rather than just Romans, because that has typically been the way that we've said it. It is. And I think there's so much talk today as well of people um, trashing the church or, you know, I love Jesus, but not the church, yeah. uh, or um, the conversation of uh, deconstructing, you know, their church or religious experience today. Mm -hmm. And you can call it whatever you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think people are looking for real grace, real truth, and real freedom. Mm. And so instead of being vulnerable, we keep secrets. Yeah. And we keep secrets about all kinds of stuff. I mean, when I say that word, a lot of us probably think of something dark or that happened to us. And it could be that. It could even be a dream we have. It could be a fear we have. Uh, but we all keep secrets. And it's when we bring that stuff into the light that other people realize, oh, okay, I can bring my stuff to the light too. Um, yeah. I, I think we've done this bad thing in church before where we try and story top, you know, it's like, yeah. 
there was a period in my Christian journey where I was actually jealous of people who had been strung out on drugs and, you know, become prostitutes. Because I was like, man, I don't, I don't have as good a testimony as they have. What's wrong with yeah. me? Yeah. But it's not about what I did. It's about the what what I did is doing to me inside of me. And that's really yeah. the layer deeper. It's not, oh, here's what I did. It's here's the shame I carried. And that's mm. where we need to be vulnerable. That is so well said. I was just going to say something similar, but not as profound as that, as most of us as pastors think, I don't have that great of a story, or I've already shared it. I can't keep trying to top it. But I think it's just sharing that, you know, I have my doubts. I have my shame. I have my guilt. I have my insecurities that make us on the same wavelength as everybody else, don't you think? Yeah. And I think it's it's being specific with it. Um, and, and you got to mm -hmm. be appropriate. Like I heard of one pastor who talked about how he struggles with lust, even while he's preaching. And I was like, oh, probably don't want to say that. I think, uh, my wife's not coming back to your church next week, but <laughs> starts pointing people out from the stage. Yeah. For instance, you, ma'am, uh, if you could stop wearing that shirt over there in the third row, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that's right. That's right. Uh, so we don't want to do that. Right. That's just, that's just bad boundaries is what that's called. Um, but mm -hmm. I did share in a sermon, uh, this fall, I said how me and my wife were on a date and it was supposed to be great. And we went to, you know, not a cheap restaurant and she had dressed up, she was looking good. And I made the mistake of saying, how'd your counseling appointment go today? And she said, let me get out my notes. And <laughs> it resulted in tears and anger. And I shared a couple more details in this, in, in the sermon, even to get specific, but I said it, it was a horrible date that, and neither of yeah. us wanted to be there. We did not like each other at the end of it. And it, and it, I did not want to share that in the lobby after church, I had this couple come up to me who is in their sixties and they said, Hey, thanks for sharing that story about your bad date. And they said, we remember ours. It was in 2007. And I kind of laughed because they were kind of laughing. Like I didn't know where they were going. And they said it was the worst date of our, whatever it was, 35 years of marriage. And the husband, and the, both the couples tell me this and the husband, they say that essentially the husband says, Hey, how come you don't share with me as much as you share with your girlfriends to his wife? And the wife said, because I learned a long time ago, you don't listen when I talk. So I stopped talking. Mm. And she said, that set us on a path of dealing with real stuff where we actually have a marriage we like now. But mm. the reason they felt safe sharing that in Christian communities is because I had gone first. Yep. And I think we always want somebody else to go first. Yep. Like, oh, the pastor should go first, or that person should go first, or the older Christian should go first. Like, we all want somebody else to go first. But we have to put our thing out there with specifics right. uh, that are appropriate to the context, right? Um, yeah. to create that context of vulnerability. That's so good. All right, Carl, for our listeners, uh, give them 90 seconds as to why they should buy this book and how they can get it. 90 seconds why they should buy this book, because we want deeper community. And that comes when our vulnerability collides with the gospel. And so the mm -hmm. book gives practical tools and tips on if you do these things, you will experience the community you're looking for. So it's available on Amazon, uh, on kin uh, as an ebook, as an audiobook, as a paperback, bloodstained pews. Uh, I think um, you're really not going to regret getting this and really diving into it with a group of people. Awesome. Carl, 
I'm so proud of you, what you're doing. I'm so grateful to know you. Keep up the great work in a very difficult area. Um, cheering on your Ravens unless they play my Chiefs. And uh, Louisville is inconsequential to me, so good for you. <laughs> hey, love you, buddy. Look up to you a lot. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for listening. Carl had such great stuff. Go buy his book. Go do that right now. Just go to Amazon and pick that up, Bloodstained Pews, or go to his website for more information. And please leave us a review and we will read it and we will draw for a winner. We've only got four weeks left of this contest, so make sure you post a review and get that up there so we can put you in the drawing. Well, next week we'll be back with brand new content as we kick off a new month cannot wait for you to be a part of this special special thanks to our incredible sponsor stadiachurchplanners.org so glad to have you with us and make sure that you check out stadiachurchplanning.org and we'll see you next weekend and as always keep it simple take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week and subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.